Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. Lisa Lucas is one of those people you'd love to get a cup of coffee with. She's funny, she's thoughtful, and she's able to look at moments of her life in a memorable way. It's a cup of coffee you would not forget. She's the senior vice president and publisher of Pantheon Books and Shockin Books. I first learned of Lisa and her work because of her appearance in Turn Every Page, a documentary about one of our favorite writers, Robert Caro, and his longtime editor, Robert Gottlieb. Lisa and I both love Caro's iconic first book, The Power Broker. So that's where we started the conversation. So, you know, I was, I read that book when I was probably about 21. And I had been living in Chicago where I went to college. And, you know, I got home and I had grown up, you know, I'd been born in New York and I had grown up in New Jersey. And I came home and I was living in Queens. And I just felt like, you know, I was an adult, quote unquote. And I was, you know, back on the East Coast and in New York City on my own terms for what felt like the first time ever. Right. And, um, and I just wanted to like deep dive on the place that I was living. And so, you know, this iconic book that you'd seen on your parents' shelves and on everyone's shelf growing up. And, you know, now these days you see it on everybody's Zoom, on MSNBC, because everybody's bookshelves are, are apparent. But it was just very much like a book that's always been in New York's collective consciousness, I think. And it just felt like the kind of challenging, long, in-depth, iconic New York City book that I should read. And I don't think I thought I was going to come away like as in love with that book as I was. But, you know, it was, you know, marginally interested. And I left obsessive. And it was just, and I remember reading it. I was, I was living in College Point, Queens at the time. And I was working uh, probably on Park Avenue South, I want to say, at a magazine. And the commute was like an hour and a half because, you know, you had to take the, the bus to the last stop on the seven and take the seven all the way to this train and then take the six. And it just took forever. And so I would just lug this giant book with me everywhere I was going for a couple of months. And um, and I just would miss train stops and just be all lost in Bob Carroll's words and the story of Robert Moses and New York City and the architecture. And, and you'd also just be like it was a living reading experience because I was reading it while I was taking buses and, you know, I was in the outer boroughs, which I think, you know, were a place of great power for Robert Moses, you know, Manhattan obviously also, but, you know, he was making Queens possible in so many different ways. Right. So it was just this moment of like, if think of it as the moment that I like, it was the moment that I became an adult New Yorker. And it was also, you know, one of the books that I think birthed a lifelong professional and personal, um, you know, mission, passion, you know, whatever you want to call it, just that my life became about books. And I think that book is one of the, you know, maybe four or five books that really did that for me. Do you recall either as a young person or maybe in high school, mm -hmm. like a first book that just kind of made you feel like the power broker later on made you feel like, wait, is there anything else going on in the world right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that I told this story a lot about sort of how, like, people ask me a lot, like, how did you just become so obsessive about books? And you'd think that there'd obviously be this childhood book. And, and I was, I was bookwormy as a kid, you know, when I was very young, you know, I, I was an only child until I was 13. Um, and so I read all the time, all the time. So, you know, this early books, so the Phantom Tollbooth was something that was really important to me. And I think it was the moment that, you know, I was probably, you know, 
bit of a hyper kid, didn't have a ton of focus. It was before anybody talked about ADHD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I never got particularly like good reports in elementary school from my teachers. You know, it was always, she's talking too much in class and she's doing this and she's doing that. And this one teacher was sort of like, I think she's reading a lot of age levels above how old she is. And everybody was reading, I don't know, Benicula. And she was just like, read the Phantom Tollbooth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was. It was challenging and clever and full of wordplay in a way that I think actually set me straight and set me on a path of sort of reading, not only for pleasure, for information or to understand the world, but also to just calm myself. Also to be able to sort of to, to harness that deep focus that, that we all need at some points in our lives. And it, it, it reminded me that it was possible for me as a kid. In the home that you grew up in, books have kind of an exalted place. Did you have some yes. sense of that? My mother loved books. My stepmother loved books. My grandmother always had shelves full of books. My grandfather was your classic mass market paperback reader. He <laughs> loved a mystery, loved a crime novel. Um, and he was always reading one, you know, a grocery store book. So everyone was always reading and everybody always loved reading. And my father was a musician, guitar player. And, you know, he wasn't the biggest reader in his adult life. But I think that we talked a lot about the books that he had read as a young person and, and, and how moved he was by literature. So I think it was really just present all around. And the arts were really present. So even if books weren't the preferred obsession, my father was, you know, a musician and he was obsessive about jazz and about R&B and about rock and roll and about records and music history. So there was always this like real acceptance of sort of wanting to, 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 to be a part of the culture, to, to consume the culture, but also to really like consider it super valid. It was never like, oh, if you read this book, even if it was like a mystery or a fantasy novel, which I loved when I was a kid, um, they never, you know, were like, you should be doing your homework or you should be doing something productive, you know, or listening to a song or watching a film or even watching television. I think that they thought that stuff was all really nutritious and important because they were Mm -hmm. culture people. Before we get to that path and what leads you uh, in growing up in New Jersey and going to University of Chicago and what leads you to these a series of first jobs and eventually into the publishing world as the person who's running Pantheon. Mm-hmm. Did you have some sense of what it would be before you started? And does that bear out or is it a completely different world than what you anticipated? I don't think there was any way to know what I was going to be doing. You know, I mean, it's like people tell you what a publisher does, right? And you're like, okay, cool. That's the job. You know, um, you're managing a list of 40 books a year, two imprints, a series of editors, marketers, and um, publicists, and people who are designing books. But I think, you know, one of the tricks of publishing, as we sort of look at the future of publishing and we look at, like, demographic change and bring people in from outside of the industry where I came from, you know, I think one of the most challenging parts of it is that it does take time to learn, to understand. I mean, so when you're publishing books, right, you're selling them in to market like well before um, people are even seeing them. You're acquiring them years before. Right. You're thinking, you know, I'm right now, I'm living in spring of 2024 and <laughs> fall of 2023. And I don't think there's like a lot of preparation for having to think on these, you know, these are the books and these are the books I'm acquiring and they might be in the far future. And 
these are the books that are publishing right now and that are out today and people are seeing at market for the first time. And then here's these books that I'm setting up for a year from now or six or eight months from now and trying to think in three different timelines, which, you know, there's so much more to it than that. But it's a good example of sort of how impossible it is to really just sort of inhabit this role until you're in this role. Uh-huh. Um, it's also really high touch people work, right? You know, editors are sensitive, writers are sensitive, agents are passionately advocating for their authors. You know, people who make books, the bookmaking teams, the people who are, you know, thinking about binding and paper, people who are interior layout folks, you know, the people who are designing book jackets. Every single person is a craftsperson, right? So you have to really nurture the relationships because you're everyone is so master and expert at something right. that it's not just like pushing papers or, you know, being like, tick that box. Your job is to tick that box. Nobody's job is to tick that box. Everyone, which we don't always know how many people go into making an actual hardcover or paperback book, how many people it really takes because there's no credits. You know, people don't even know that there's a different designer for the front of the book and somebody who's typesetting the book and somebody, you know, they don't know who the copy editor is or what the assistants do. And everyone is so really terrifically talented. And and all of the things that we all do in different ways, you know, require years and years of deep expertise study, you know, and practice to sort of get right. So so there was no way to really know what I was jumping into. I knew I needed to make books. I knew the job is to connect those books to readers, to convert those readers into, you know, you know, into sort of a profit profitability for the book when possible, you know, and to and to try and, you know, for me to really think about equity inside of the publishing landscape. That's a conversation that could we could spend a whole weekend talking about that. Years worth of weekends. <laughs> going into the job, the notion of you know, where you're going to take Pantheon, also as the first black woman to run mm-hmm. Pantheon in its, uh, what, 80-year history? Mm-hmm. Uh, just get a sense of there are more eyes on you than ordinary because ordinarily there weren't to be that many eyes on, a, on the head of an, a publishing company. Yeah, no. I mean, you know, I was talking to somebody who was like, gosh, What's it like to do your job in front of, you know, so many people that are watching? Um, and I think it's highly unusual. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and, and, and frankly, if I weren't a black woman or I weren't on Twitter or, you know, a variety of different things about me, you know, no one would be paying attention other than just a few folks. Right. Um, I think that it's on one hand a burden, right? Like it's annoying to sort of like, you know, we get to make our mistakes in peace a lot of the times in our professional lives. Right. But and especially when you're a back-end administrator, right? Like, it's like, I'm not a, intended to be any kind of public person. Like, I mean, that, you know, if I am at all, it's by entire utter accident um, because I'm just, I'm as behind the scenes as it gets, mm-hmm. right? So to be front of, you know, face forward is is not a natural posture for these roles, right? Because you're, you know, you're dealing with sensitive things. You're You're making deals, you know, you're keeping secrets, you're, you know, you're 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 dealing with very, you know, um, you know, writers in moments of vulnerability where they're nervous about their life's work going into the world. And so it's hard to sort of balance the attention sometimes being on me and what will she do? You know, the second piece of that I'll say is like, you know, the other side of it, we can't wait to see what she does is I can't wait to see if it doesn't work out. There's always tons of people rooting for you. Right. But there's always going to be somebody rooting against you. And so it's hard too to know that people, you know, sort of 
feel comfortable publicly disagreeing, you know, with some random small choice that I make when, when most of those choices are just not, I'm, you can't get to the person, you know, you don't know the person will ever read. There's no outlet in which to read those things. So it's unusual, but the good part, the third part, and I think the most important part is that performing your work life publicly, um, when you, you know, have an identity that is not visible inside of an industry to scale, Right. is like there's a lot of young people watching. And I grew up, you know, I started my career working with young people as an arts educator and doing pre-professional development for teenagers. And so a part of me will always be that, like, you show them how to be by being you out loud. And so it's a real pleasure and a real privilege to do my work out loud for them, hmm. for young re- people. And the people who are watching you and, and thinking... I could do that because yeah, because and they can. Right? They absolutely can. You know, yeah, it's not so. rocket science. You know, it's like I mean, it, it's, it's a little bit of rocket science. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it takes everything. Takes work, discipline, expertise. You know, time, and you know, it's like you have to want it. You have to want it, and you have to do the work. But I think that it's very possible for people that passionately love books. Look, three hundred twenty-five million Americans, right? Roughly. And a book is successful when it sells 30,000, 100,000 copies, right? Mm-hmm. That just leaves a, a lot of hundreds of millions of Americans to reach. So the work is never done. We need everyone. Right. Right. You know, we need everyone. We need, we need soldiers for books. Uh, the great writer, Jacqueline Woodson, who I've been blessed to interview a bunch of times, uh, I remember telling me that when she was growing up as a reader in Brooklyn and not seeing herself in many of the books that she was reading. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I mean, we all did. Or seeing versions of yourself that were sort of like bizarro your life. Like you're like this kind of like normal suburban, you know, kid in Teaneck or Montclair, New Jersey, minding your own business. And then like, you know, you get the American Girl doll, you know, like who was a slave. And you're like, well, she looks like me, but like I'm not experiencing slavery today. You know, I mean, that's not a book, but like, I think you have a lot of those kinds of things where there is black representation, but it doesn't quite look like in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, I think what you were getting was definitely some representation inside of books, but it was it was very one note. And, and you know, and, and I think you probably heard a million times, just like all of us, blackness is not a monolith, right. right? So it's not that you're just looking for representation or seeing yourself. You want a multiplicity of perspectives represented in your literature, in your films, in your TV, in your music, right? Like, it's like there's room in music for Cardi B and Luther Vandross and, you know what I mean, a whole bunch of different types of music and Lauryn Hill and, you right? So we see this broad, electric, you know, kind of swath of Blackness in America, regional, right? Like, it's like you listen to Southern hip-hop, L.A. hip-hop, East Coast hip-hop, Chicago hip hop, right? These are all different things that tell us all about where we are. And then you get state by state, you know, Texas is different from Florida is different from California. And when you think about it in the book side, you know, it's like you're seeing really flat representations, I think, when I'm growing up, especially in children's literature. Um, The first time I really felt like a book just kind of like struck me like, oh, wow, this feels a whole lot like my life or a whole lot more like my life than a lot of the books that I'd read. It was actually Zadie Smith's White Teeth, which is actually I'm not British nor biracial nor, you know what I mean? Like, nor am I anything really like those characters. 
but it was a multicultural environment. Teaneck and Montclair are both deeply, deeply multicultural towns. I had a very multicultural family, you know, a Chinese uncle, a Jewish grandpa. You know, my stepmother is a white woman from Albuquerque. You know, I have two black parents that are from both Chicago and New York. And so it's like it felt like, you know, I had this really rangy kind of family. Mm-hmm. And and you want to see that, like, that, that families are actually constructed like this. And that's my own experience. So anyone's experience, you want to see something that gestures towards the fact that you exist in the world. When you head off to the University of Chicago, is the message from your family, why don't you focus on this or do this? Or is the message, the world's your oyster, go learn and let's see what happens. Or do you have some, you, do you have some notion going out there what, what you think the future might hold? None idea. I was 17 years old when I moved to Chicago and went to college. Um, I was, you know, really young and had no idea what I wanted to do. And, you know, my father dropped out of high school um, to play his guitar successfully. Um, Not, you know, necessarily everyone's track, but it worked out for him. And my mother was like a lot more straightforward. You know, she was an advertising executive, still is. Um, And you know, she probably had more opinions about what I should do than he did, but but I wasn't terribly governable. I had no idea what I wanted to do, you know, and they weren't really pushy in that way. I felt really free. And I don't know if that was just because I was a really bossy, ungovernable kid <laughs> um, or if they were just really open minded. Um, I think they had a little more confusion when I was in my 20s and it wasn't clear to them what I was doing with my life, even though I had a very clear sort of path forward. But I think that has to do with the fact that I worked at nonprofits for 20 years and 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 I'm not sure that they just for whatever reason like really like understood what nonprofits were like as a career. <laughs> you know, I think I think if I had been like I work at this theater company, they'd be like, oh, that makes sense. But like when I was like, oh, I just work at nonprofits, they were like, well, when do you make a profit? Hence the word nonprofit. Right. Well, yeah. slightly misleading, but yes. But you did work at a, a pretty great theater company in Chicago, mm-hmm. Steppenwolf. Yeah, and and before that, as I understand it, you were the supervisor of the University of Chicago Telefund. Now, <laughs> I got I got to say, under the heading of cool jobs on campus or jobs that, you know, like you walk down the main part of campus, hey, hey, everybody, I'm... Um, that's right. That's probably that not ain't it. it. That ain't <laughs> it. The telephone manager is not that job. I was not, you know, I was not, um, I was not the homecoming queen for that job, but <laughs> it was a terrific job. It was a terrific job. It was one of the highest paying jobs on campus. And that's not why it was terrific. It was terrific because I got to work with the development team when I was like 17 years old or 18 years old and like write scripts and learn how to supervise other students. And it was just like, and also to really understand how fundraising worked, which was something that was a part of my life for the next 20 years in a really individual way. And like, forget about raising money, dialing for dollars, you know, for me, fundraising on the individual level when you're bringing, and this is a lot of what I did pre coming to Pantheon two and a half years ago, you know, there's power in the individual donor. And there's power in telling hundreds and thousands of people about why you're good and why you matter, right? It's like, it's boots on the ground work. And Mm -hmm. so I started in this kind of, you know, sort of job that's sort of unappealing to almost everyone because it's telemarketing. Um, But it was at a very sophisticated place that I cared about quite a lot. And it was really an honor to sort of figure out how to spread the good word. 
and to bring people in. It was like a little different back then. You'd call and they'd be happy to hear from you because they were renewing their seats for the next season or they really loved or valued Steppenwolf. It was kind of like a hometown hero. Um, but it really was, you know, like it's all about changing hearts and minds and, and, and that fundraising process, getting people to give you 25 bucks or 100 bucks, you know, of their hard-earned money to say like this theater company in this city you know, a regional theater company matters a lot to us. And we want to make sure you're still here and you're still standing. And and that need and that desire and that working towards getting lots of people to support a thing that I support as was a part of my very early professional life. And I think that has just carried on to this very day. Are there other threads with some of the early jobs you had, both in Chicago and then in New York before you eventually get to the National Book Foundation. Absolutely. A, a big deal. Are there common are there threads through all those previous jobs that you could see run through all of them? For sure. So, you know, I mean, I think the thing for me is once I left Steppenwolf, I went to go work in arts education at a theater company called Tada in New York, which many, many people who have young people in New York have brought their kids to see shows, or maybe their kids have been in the ensemble, or maybe they've had workshops inside of their elementary or middle schools. Um, but it was this terrific little theater that, you know, wanted to bring the joy of musical theater to students all around New York and to families and children at an affordable price. And I did a lot of special events work, development work, you know, grant writing. But really what that's all about at a young age is access, right? If I don't know that there's, if I've never had a chocolate bar, I'm not going to know to go buy one, like Mm -hmm. to seek that joy out if I've never had one, right? So giving access to young people um, to theater at a young age and at an affordable price, like opens them up, right? To to being a participant in theater. And it, it democratizes theater, right? Because we know that when we go into a theater, it's not always diverse, the butts in the seats, right? You know, the butts that are sitting in the seats are sometimes all different kinds of people. And, you know, the work that I did was to sort of invite always, whether I was doing development or I was doing program work or direct service, or I was recommending books, whatever I was doing for a living, I was always trying to invite someone into the cultural medium that I was advocating for. So I then go to Tribeca Film Institute where I was the director of education and I was there for like six or seven years. And that was really like, I think like the most definitional job I've probably ever had until you get to the foundation, the National Book Foundation, because, you know, I got to build this big program that served, you know, tens of thousands of New York City public school students we trained them to do pre-professional development. We trained them to make films. We trained teachers. We wrote curriculum for New York City's DOE to train that's still used called the Blueprint for Teaching and Learning in the Arts. It was really a 360 holistic way to sort of address making sure that one, the Tribeca Film Festival felt like it was for young people in New York City, that if we were showing a film about kids playing chess in the Bronx, that kids in the Bronx who might be interested in chess should be in the theater watching it or their parents. And that anything else was like, what's the point then? It's not just for the red carpet. No, it's not just for the red carpet. But also, you know, we used to bring kids out so we'd have them make films and we'd rent out uh, TPAC, the Tribeca Performing Arts Center, this huge like 900 seat theater. And we would have we'd load in school after school and I'd stand on the street and I'd be on a chair and I'd have a megaphone and I'd be like, I didn't even have a megaphone. I just projected and I'd be like, all right, you know, middle school, 132, load them in. 
And we would just watch these hundreds of kids, thousands over the course of a week, load in and see films. But they got to take their pictures on the red carpet. And, you know, it's like the idea was to sort of, one, give them magical experiences, but also to divest them of the the fallacy that it was, in fact, magic. Right. right? That it was actually something they could do, union jobs they could have, right? Or filmmaking jobs that they could chase, you know, and it was just like the whole thing was just about busting it wide open for them so that they could just feel a part. Right. The notion of why not me? Right. And I think I'm still, even though I work at a corporate trade publisher, you know, in a totally different framework than um, all of the nonprofits that I've worked, I think we're still doing access work. We're still, you know, like we still as publishers have a case to make for the book to many, many people. And that case, you know, on our end, right, as a as a, you know, sort of a corporation, like the job is to make money, but every dollar we earn is an idea transmitted. Mm-hmm. And that to me is really powerful uh, incentive to do this work in a different framework and to, to widen the audience. At that point, you mentioned how your family was thinking about uh, the notion of nonprofit. While mm-hmm. you're having these different jobs, are you thinking, yeah, this is, this is happening. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. This is great. Uh, or is there some notion of, hmm, is this going to work out? Well, until the day I took the job at Penguin Random House, I don't think I had any plan or intention for all of my life of working anywhere but a nonprofit. I just, it never even occurred to me. I loved the work and it, it felt needed. You know, it felt like it was a strong need to sort of like have powerful advocates, you know, for, mm. for, for children, families, readers filmgoers to, to just have a more equitable, you know, sort of cultural landscape. It felt like it still feels like my life's work. I, I think I've grown up enough to understand that that can exist in a lot of different ways. But, you know, but no, I never questioned it at all. And, and you know, it was never, it remains not about the money. You know, I would do this for free. if As long as I could eat food, you know, and, and be healthy and well, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter. Did you get into publishing? Did I read correctly that a friend, a friend of yours had a book? And was like yeah. going around and you just kind of followed the friend around and. Yeah. Off. My friend, Kathy Chung, who I went to college with, um, was being published by Riverhead, um, a great publisher. And her editor was then uh, somebody who used to work there and now runs Flatiron Books um, named Megan Lynch. And I just was hanging out with Kathy and she was doing all her book stuff. And I was kind of like I had left Tribeca and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for a living. I was consulting for a bunch of places, but I was kind of just like, maybe I'll work in books. I don't know. And I had no way in. And it was how I just started meeting people. You know, it was like the first time that I met people in books. Um, And it wasn't really a direct road to publishing because I actually didn't really work in publishing until 2021. Um, But it was the beginning of sort of being able to work in books. And it really took me several more years after after that moment where Kathy published her book to even find a paid job, but she was a fiction editor at Guernica magazine, uh, which was an all volunteer free magazine um, of art and politics. And I ended up being the publisher there years later, but at that time I just wanted to weigh in. So I volunteered as the associate publisher um, and just sort of saw that there was this terrific magazine and that there was a way to kind of give it like an economic backbone um, to really like help it, you know, sort of get funding from the NISCAs or the NEAs of the world and to, you know, maybe pay some writers and maybe grow a little bit and maybe, you know, give us some stability. You once wrote that uh, you were used to being one of the very few people of color in the room, 
but you rarely had the experience of being the only one in certain rooms until you worked in publishing. Mm -hmm. How does one prepare for that? You can't. It's an ugly thing when you know, when you walk down the street and you see so many people that look like you all throughout your city, you know the numbers, you know where we are, you know how much interest there is, you know, and it's sad. You know, it feels like, it feels like, it never feels good to be the only, the one let into the party, right? You want to be like, you want to just, you want there not to be a difference, right? You want to not be measured based on your race or your opinions because you were, you know, because, you know, or challenges to sort of saying, it doesn't feel good to feel this way. It doesn't feel good to be the only person here to call it out. You know, yeah, you, you want people to just meet you where you are. You know, and, and, and to, to not have it be such a thing. It's never good to be the only. I hate being the only. I hate being the first. Right? Because it's just like, somebody's got to do it, but it's no fun at all. Is there some le- a point where you kind of reach out, okay, yeah, don't like being the first, don't like those circumstances, right. certainly, but here's, here's the f- fruit of my labor, not just building a, a good publishing company, but mm-hmm. talking about that young kid coming along and said, yeah, yeah. you can do this. Well, in the field at large, I think, you know, sure, I can say, I think we need to be more diverse and I can talk to people and I can be a good advocate and lobby. And I think that I'm one of many people who've been doing this work for a very long time. So I certainly don't take any credit for it myself or or have any particular disproportionate influence than anyone else. But um, I do think that um, at Pantheon, you know, of course you think equitably. And, you know, I think it's on me too to be diverse in every single possible way, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not just about black folks. It's not just about, it's about where you went to college. It's about how you present. It's about, you know, like what your background and your experiences are. It's, you know, it's like, are you know, it's like, where are you from? You know, it's like how many book publishers or book editors are from Colorado or West Virginia? You know, it's regional, it's economic, it's educational, it's racial, it's, you know, it's religion, it's faith, it's all of it. You know, and you have to try to, to the best of your ability, be as equitable as you can be, you know, without being like, oh, I'm the preferred minority. So let's just do everything black because that's my own politics. Right. It's like, there's a lot of inequity in the whole world, not just publishing. And I think publishing, you know, has gotten its fair share of criticism. Um, But, you know, this is imperfect in a lot of places, you Mm -hmm. know, and and I think that we, you know, a small industry in many ways, and, you know, it's a very specific, you know, um, place and passion we're weird right like i feel like we're sometimes kind of the island of misfit toys you know all the book nerds found each other uh myself included right and it's just like and so it's a unusual community and a wonderful one beautiful one um but more made more beautiful rendered more beautiful with more uh, multiplicity of voices and and backgrounds what's it like to be in the publishing industry at a time when there are places around the country that are banning books or at least challenging them. I mean, it's terrible. It's scary. You know, I don't know that we have enough of a foothold. You know, the American readership is declining. And um, for us to be messing around and, and, and trying to even further, you know, go further away from curiosity, intellectual rigor, truth telling, actual history, diversity of thought is really scary when we're already so fractured and so divided and not reading enough, right? Like, it's like, it's just very scary. Um, It makes the work feel more important. It makes being a defender of the written word and an advocate of actually reading those written words um, feel more um, 
critically important than it ever has. Um, and it's not just the bands, but it's the cultural context in which those bands are made possible. Can you tell me the experience you had when um, when Mouse, the famous book Mouse, got banned? And what was that like for you when you first heard about it? And then what were those days like? Well, it wasn't the first time that Mouse had been banned, right? Like, it's like, it's not the first time Persepolis has been banned, the Diary of Anne Frank has been banned. You know, these books have been banned. Um, but it is a moment that's really, really, really caught the the attention of the American populace, particularly the left. When it happened, I sort of, everybody was kind of used to Mouse getting banned. And I was like, there's like a weird tweet. <laughs> and everybody was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I think this is different. And it was. And, you know, I just don't even, I do not remember that month because it was so insane. Really? Um, it was just like, I mean, because what happens with these book bans is like, right, so a book gets banned by some book banner and the media says a book has been banned. And then everybody on whatever side it is decides this is outrageous. You know, like in this, like on the flip, people were upset when Blake Bailey's book was challenged um, when he had all the allegations happen. Um, and, you know, and people were like making it move and shake on Amazon, right? Because they were like, they're cancel culturing this guy. Uh, on the, the left, you know, you hear a book is banned and everybody's like, gotta read this book. Like, we've got to buy a copy of it. Make sure, you know, it's like, that's like my kid has to read the banned book. Right. So it creates this extraordinary demand for a book, right? And, and an incredible awareness of a book. Um, that already had an incredible awareness, but it just gets quite loud. And you then you're dealing with issues of printing, you know, making sure the books are where they are, making sure that the people have the books that they want. Have you ever had an author come to you and say, hey, look, any chance you can get my book banned? <laughs> no, it's a I terrible way to make money. Nobody wants that. Do you know what I mean? What people want are for people to come to books honest and openly. It's like, it's, it's, it's like a terrible, it's like, it's great that people are reading these books. Right. But the way that we're getting there is so stupid. That it's just, you know, it's really tricky because it's like you don't want like you don't want people to have to read a, an incredible story about the Holocaust because somebody told their students and their teachers that they couldn't teach this book to help people understand the Holocaust. I mean, where that goes is dark. And so, yeah, you might sell a lot of books, but I mean, how awful that we're fighting these things that we've been fighting for decades and decades and they just keep popping back up and it's like playing Hungry Hungry Hippo and just, you know, smashing them away, you know, from my perspective. And, you know, I run um, both Pantheon and Shockin, which is, you know, a Jewish trade press, mm -hmm. you know, which is the publisher of um, the Diary of Anne Frank, the illustrated edition that recently got banned. And the idea that illustrated or not, that the Diary of Anne Frank isn't teachable is horrific. It strikes me in reading about you that, and I know as a reader myself, it's a love story. Mm -hmm. You pick up a book and, oh, um, five pages in, I'm in. 10 pages in, I'm in. But that has a, a commercial uh, aspect to it with you as well, sure. uh, being in the publishing company. So how many pages do you usually give yourself? Is it, Before is I it, fall in love? Yeah. Or, or is, you know, is there, you, you've done this for a while now. Is there like, okay, I know this feeling. I'm on the fence here. I'll go 10 more pages or. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it depends on if you're reading editorially, right. Or you're reading, you know, I try to give something that I'm reading editorially as much of a chance as possible. So I, right. you know, unless I'm really just like, there is no chance that this could get better for me. Right. I'm reading the whole thing. 
right? Like, it's like I'm trying to get through the whole thing. As a private reader, I, you know, I don't have a lot of patience for stuff I don't need to read. I have to read an awful lot for work. And there's an awful lot of books that I'm concerned about dying before I've had a chance to read. And I still have some years to go. I'm only 43. And, you know, it's like with that, you know, copy of The Brothers K, which I've never read before. <laughs> the Brothers you know, K, huh? I've never read it. Yeah, uh, I, I've tried it like six times, but I've never referred to it in that cool way as the Brothers K. I no, well, that. I was just because I couldn't pronounce it properly for you. So, oh no, you know, that's I'm very just not cool. Do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not. I'm absolutely not going to read some nonsense that I hate. I'm not going to tell people that I hate it because I just personally, for me, I don't need to be a negative, a source of negativity around books. Right. I think critics, critic, go ahead, criticize. That's fine. That's their job. My job is not to, my job is to privately critique, but my job is not to publicly critique. So I try to, you know, there's no value in like, people don't need to hear why I didn't like something, but sometimes something is so bad that you need to understand the mechanics of why you hate it professionally. And, and, and that, or something is just so bad for you, but other people who you trust love it so much that you have to read it three times to prove to yourself that you really do hate it, which I've done. I'm curious if the lessons you learned growing up at home, growing up in, in uh, suburban New Jersey, and then at the University of Chicago in those early jobs, uh, what role those lessons play in the work you do now? Oh, God. My parents taught me to be open-minded, confident, brave, believe in the power of art, right? Those are the early lessons. Um, University of Chicago taught me how to be rigorous. And that there was a wider world of, of letters, of ideas, politics, of economic theory that I had no idea as a young woman that I was interested in, that I think set me off on an additionally sort of open-minded path. And then I think all those jobs just taught me that you can work every single day in a boring Excel-based back-end arch job and really change the way that American readers or theater goers or cultural consumers in any way, you know, make choices. And I think that that's really beautiful. The notion that any of us as little kids can think, oh, one day I'll be this. Maybe some people have that, but the notion of you as a book loving young person that yeah. all these years later are at, at the center of the industry, are you at all reflective about, wow, that love kind of worked out? Oh my God, yeah. Like I met James Elroy in the like, he, he's published by our sister um, publisher. And so he was in there signing some books. And I just was like, Mr. Elroy, I'm a very big fan. I was like, my name is Lisa. You don't know me, but I just like, I, I he's like, I've seen you on television. And I was like, you've seen what? You know, like, <laughs> he's like, you run Pantheon. And I was like, what in the world? Like, how could James Elroy possibly know who I am? And I'm sure he's thought about me for about 10 seconds of his whole life, but it's like, yeah, young me is like, oh my God, everything you admired, every person. And I never wanted to be a writer. So it's not like this kind of like my heroes in that way, just the people who taught me lessons and kept me company and were my friends and just taught me about the world, shows me, showed me cities that I had never been to, you know, just you meet them and they're a part of your life. And it's just such an honor and a privilege. And that's interesting that you mentioned that you never wanted to be a writer. So it takes away all that oh, I'm going to do this part of the business and I'll have some angst about it because, oh, yeah. I, yeah. That, no that's, angst that's, at that's all. Gone. Oh, God. No, I'm so glad not to be standing in front of a computer like 
you know, pouring my soul into it and, and, and you're wondering if it's, you know, good enough, which it often is. Writers take care, mm-hmm. you know, take heart. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's not the thing that I want to be doing my days. I'm energetic. I want to talk. I want to be sharing my energy. I want to be like, you know, figuring out how to make things work. You want to cheer on the guy who wrote The Brothers K. <laughs> Lisa, it's been a real pleasure. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Lisa Lucas. She's the senior vice president and publisher of Pantheon and Shockin' Books. Pantheon's book, Chain Gang All-Stars, by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, was just named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.